0: This episode of Recording Studio Rockstars is brought to you by OWC, Whisper Room, and Eventide. So get ready to rock.
1: That's the thing about New Orleans and the way we revere our musicians is that, you know, what car you drive or what status you have means nothing. And in New Orleans, you're ranked solely on your skill. You are judged strictly by how damn good you are on your instrument. Dr. John was a guy who had the respect of every single musician.
0: Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. If you're sick of bothering the neighbors when you are trying to record your music or ruining your recordings with outside noises, but you're not ready to spend a ton of money on permanent studio construction yet, then consider getting a Whisper Room ISO booth for your studio. Whisper Room offers the instant solution for a comfortable, quiet, ventilated, portable ISO booth with easy line of sight for recording vocals, guitar amps, or even drums. Get 10% off the 4x4 or 4x6 booth when you mention recording studio rock stars to whisperroom.com or click the link in the show notes below what do michael brower joe ciccarelli mike gazowski dave pensato and george massenberg all have in common They all have great things to say about Eventide. Originating in a New York City basement in 1971 with the original Instant Phaser and H910 Harmonizer, Eventide continues to transform the sound of music with the iconic H9000 Harmonizer, visionary guitar effects like the H9 pedal, and now a whole suite of incredible plugins for your studio. Go to eventide.com to learn more or click the link in the show notes below. This episode is sponsored by OWC, Otherworld Computing, which you can find at OWC.com, your trusted source for memory and speed upgrades, DIY installs, and used Macs for your studio. Let OWC focus on keeping your studio Mac in killer condition so that you can focus on making great music. Why ditch your existing Mac when you can take your studio far into the future with OWC? Learn more at OWC.com and learn how you can supercharge your studio Mac. The speed to create, the capacity to dream. Find out how awesome your Mac can be at OWC. Hey, Rockstars, it's your host, Lid Shaw, and welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Chris Finney, a Grammy-winning producer, engineer, and mixer. He is a lifelong advocate of music and business education on both the high school and college levels. His 25-plus years in the recording studio include dates with Robert Plant, B.B. King, Herbie Hancock, and New Orleans legends Dr. John, Harry Connick Jr., Alan Toussaint, The Meters, and Fats Domino. He has been instrumental in kicking off and developing the recording careers of New Orleans' funk rock mainstays Galactic, Trombone Shorty, The Revivalists, Naughty Professor, and newcomers like Sexual Thunder and Organized Crime. In 2017, he co founded the nonprofit 30 Amp Circuit with renowned guitarist Charlie Hunter. 30 Amp's mission is to bring music from underserved communities around the world into the mainstream. Their first project brought them to rural Southeast Mexico to produce *Los Sagrado by Silvana Estrada, which was released in November 2017. Chris is currently adjunct professor of music business at Tulane University in New Orleans and is an active member of the Memphis chapter of the Recording Academy, currently serving as a chapter governor, as well as co-chair of the Producers and Engineers wing. Also, I want to give a big shout out and thanks to Emil Lou Op for introducing me to Chris to bring him onto the show. Thanks, Emil. Please welcome Chris Finney to Recording Studio Rockstars. Chris, my man, are you ready to rock?
1: I am ready.
0: So is that what you guys do down in New Orleans? Do you rock, or should I have asked something different? We rock, a-
1: rock and roll, you know, we we get a, we get our boogie on, you know, there's, there's no wrong way to eat a Reese's.
0: I like that. Are you ready to get your boogie on?
1: <laughs> that I am.
0: <laughs> um Cool, man. Well, so uh, give us a brief introduction to who you are in your own words. Um, Do you still have a studio down there that you're operating out of regularly? And, um, you know, how'd you get into this recording stuff?
1: Well, um, I guess how I got into it is probably best described as too stupid to stop. I've just never loved anything as much in spite of, you know, good financial years or bad financial years. It was like nothing gives me as much satisfaction as helping musicians complete their vision, whether it's as a producer or an engineer or a mixer and just being around musicians. I'm a failed musician myself. And, um, you know, that's, I went into record during high school with my high school band and realized I wanted to be on the other side of the glass more than I wanted to be playing my bass. And, um, just kind of have always been lucky enough to follow my heart in that regard. Um, as far as, um, the, 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 who i am and what i do i've kind of had a foot in every type of recording engineering that has you know crossed my my path i've done broadcast audio i've done um stuff for you know video for tv and movies um i've made i couldn't even count probably 200 or 300 records um and then countless sessions for overdubs and this and that i've i've uh, done low voltage installation for, you know, casinos and movie theaters and stuff like that. So yeah. if it's, if it's audio, I've probably had a hand in it. And, um, but absolutely my favorite piece is, is, uh, making records.
0: Yeah, it's pretty fun. And I like that quote, too stupid to stop. We were just talking about, um, you know, m- we were discussing the podcast sort of continuing on for, at this point, I think you're the 215th interview that I've done. But uh, I don't know if it's too stupid of me doing the podcast. I feel like I, I kind of know where I'm going with this, but um, you know, I understand when it comes to music, it's just like uh, they what's what's one of the expressions? I'm going to totally butcher it, but it's something like you know the the um, road to success is littered with the the, the bodies of uh, brilliant people or something <laughs> okay, like that. Like you know,
1: um, uh, Hunter S. Thompson, the, the shallow money trench that's filled with uh, you know uh, all kinds of miscreants and but it has a positive side too
0: right exactly or no but it has a negative side too yeah that's it um yeah so i mean it's just that persistence to just enjoy making records and keep doing it that takes you through all these things and then you you talk about doing the low voltage stuff too um uh you know one of the first things i learned in the studio was how to solder and wire things and i feel like that's a bit of a disappearing art form too for a lot of people
1: it kind of is, you know. A lot of people's experience with recording really now is ones and zeros, and you don't get that hands-on. You know, you have a pile of gear and you have a room. Let's let's put it together and have a studio. And and the, the process between that those two points really is kind of a, a going away. You know, I mean, you can a lot of stuff is plug and play now. You can buy a pair of speakers that have amps built into the back, and all you need to do is pick up a quarter inch to XLR cable, and you're connected to your interface. And you know, it's definitely. The the idea of the session is stopping because this microphone is not working.
0: Um, we'll just buy a new mic on Amazon. It'll be here in an hour.
1: <laughs> but like think about the the you know the tube mics back in the day. You know, it, notoriously um, delicate, and and if something happened in the middle of the session, and if it was the kind of thing you could do a quick repair, and you look, oh look, the power cables come unsoldered. You're not shutting down the session, and you're not spending hundreds of dollars to to get it fixed. So it can be a real benefit to knowing that stuff for sure.
0: Well, and also just wiring up a studio to begin with. That's one of those rites of passage that I feel like is such an awesome part of of recording, That that creation of your recording space at the very beginning where you're figuring out how you want to run all the cables and where you want things to go and how you're going to arrange musicians and all that kind of stuff.
1: Totally, making those mistakes and thinking, you know, while you're setting it up, this is going to be great. And then actually getting in a session and going, oh, geez, what have I done?
0: (laughs) So, I did, you know, for me, it took me a good decade and a half before I actually created a really, you know, a really well built studio space or one where it was like, I'm making some decisions. And if I screw this up, I'll be in trouble. Mm -hmm. And And at that point, I think I really knew a lot more. Um, about what I needed to be able to do in the studio, so maybe there is some advice there about uh, building a lot of temporary studios at first. Definitely so, helping you
1: know. helping out your friends. You know, anytime you find out that somebody's building a studio, uh, like we were talking about Emil, that's that's kind of how he and I grew close. Was that he had a ton of questions on how to set up his studio, and it was like, you know what? Let's just hang. Let me show you. Let's let's do this together. And that's, you know, it's like an institutional knowledge that gets passed down. And that's how I got it. You know, the the cats who taught me are not around anymore. They're dead. I literally cannot pay them back for having taught me that stuff. So I think it's vital that we pay it forward. And I think every one of us who's got that skill has that responsibility to share it, or else it'll go away.
0: Um, Do you have a studio that you're operating out of uh, with some regularity
1: now? So in 2012... um, I should rewind a little further than that, if you if you don't mind. the the in in 2005, obviously we got wiped out by Hurricane Katrina, and um, um, so a lot of studios went away. The entire landscape of New Orleans music sheen- scene changed at that time, and the 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 real hallmark studio for New Orleans for the working musicians, not the big marquee places, million dollar vintage this and that, but the really working every day doing legitimate work studio was a place called ultrasonic studio and those guys were great mentors to me and teachers as well and after katrina they decided they weren't coming back they flooded i think they had 10 or 12 feet of water in their studio so they decided you know what we've had a good run we're getting out of it and so i partnered up with a guy who owned a warehouse and was doing music rehearsal rooms and um the he had uh, you know they, they it was a few of them that owned the property together and they were kind of exploring the idea of doing a recording studio and in the aftermath of katrina it was like well wait a minute there's a real opportunity here if ultrasonic's not coming back new orleans needs a good working studio every single day so we, we drew all of our gear into a room and started soldering and Built a built the studio called the music shed, which is still running to this day. I left in 2012 to become a freelance uh, to go back to being freelance. And so at that point, um, a friend of mine was running legendary studio uh, called studio in the country, which is outside of New Orleans, about an hour and 15 minutes. Um, it's in an area that we call the North Shore. It's a, it's across the lake. I so thought that you, was the swamp. Yeah, it's all swamp. <laughs> but you can you can actually drive a little bit over the- there.
0: There's more alliteration in Studio in the Swamp, but it would sound like the gear <laughs> wasn't working.
1: <laughs> you have to run the air condition all year round, but you know it's the kind of thing. Um, bring mosquito spray. But no, Studio in the Country is uh, an amazing spot up on 30 acres in, um, in a place called Bogalusa. And it's got an amazing history. It was, you know, where Kansas recorded Carry On My Wayward Son and Dust in the Wind and uh, Cinderella recorded Heartbreak Station there. And I think, um, you know, there's a lot of legendary uh, kind of more regional acts like uh, Professor Longhair and uh, Gate yeah. Mount Brown and, and that kind of stuff was done up there. Uh, a lot of the Neville Brothers early recordings. And, and um, so it had a real part uh uh, to play in the new orleans music history and it wasn't it was largely untouched by katrina because it's about an hour and a half out of town yeah and um a guy i started out with i've known for years uh ben mumphrey has been managing that place for about 12 years now and so when I left in 2012, he said, "Hey man, why don't you you know take whatever gear that you don't want sitting around your house and move it up here, and I'll I'll hook you up with a a a sweet trade rate where you can leave your gear here, and you can book the room for I mean basically a fraction of the price um, that it would cost you know if you just cold called the studio." And that's allowed me to kind of set up um a workflow for my clients to where i can give them a package deal and and say we'll go do four or five days out at the studio and then i'll bring it home to my spot um where i have a a room in my house that's set up as a studio really it's just a control room that you happen to be able to do an overdub or two in right Um, but it's more about the control room about the editing and the mixing and then um and just recently uh ben mumfrey from studio in the country and i also have partnered up with um an artist here in town named alex ebert who had a band called uh edward sharp and the magnetic zeros
0: oh yeah i know alex i've recorded him
1: great guy man super cool guy and super creative just off the charts creative and he had bought one of the the great studios here in town uh it was a place called piety street the owners of the original piety street studio were Um, they were, they were done. They were retiring. They wanted to to move on to different things. And so Alex bought the studio as a private studio and invited me and Ben to join him, uh, just in the last couple months to, um, to help. It satisfies the problem that Ben and I have of having to go an hour and a half out of the city to go get a studio. Um, as well as it helps Alex by having two professional record makers in the building with him um, mm-hmm. using the time as well as him. So my current situation is actually pretty sweet.
0: <laughs> That's pretty awesome, man. That's what a great story and what a trip you've done all this stuff. And I, I, I was going to drop in this, this uh, silly joke when you were talking about the studio in the swamp but Lends a whole new meaning to alligator clips in the studio. <laughs> but uh, but that's cool. Yeah, Alex is uh, Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. That's one of the bands that I had in my Bonnaroo Hay Bale studio um, some years ago. And it's one of the highest views on YouTube for when we were shooting video there as well. And it was awesome. I mean, they brought in like 12 musicians. <laughs> and we just had to like figure out where to put everybody and how to get a condenser mic on just about everything.
1: That sounds like a day in the studio with him. Actually. Yeah, and then and then
0: he um, he was like, "No, I don't need a mic stand." And he just held an SM7 in his hand and and you know pointed it up towards his face and sang <laughs> over it. And he was standing and dancing around, and it was it was all just super cool. It turned out great.
1: Yeah. He's a great guy. And like I said, crazy creative. He's always into something video or politics or whatever. And it's just amazing to watch his mind work. And so when he reached out to us, it was like, of course, we want to help you have a, a more professional studio. <laughs> you know, of course we do.
0: That's great. Well, so, hey, um, tell us about the photo that you sent me for this uh, for the podcast. It's you in an astronaut suit. What's, what's the <laughs> scoop with that?
1: So the very first thing I wanted to be <laughs> since I can remember was an astronaut. My all time hero is Neil Armstrong. And that's actually my face cropped into Neil Armstrong's official NASA okay,
0: all right. Apollo
1: uh, <laughs> photograph. But um, a friend of mine, you know, kind of in the, the, it's coming up again every summer, third week of July, you kind of celebrate the Apollo uh, moon mission. And that has just been something that's been integral to my life. In fact, you know how uh, studios will put stickers on the doors, on the sliding glass doors, to keep you from walking into them when they're really right. clean. Ours at Studio in the Country are, are all NASA mission patches. How oh, cool! We're just we're just space heads. And I, I, when you had asked for a promo picture, I was like, "Geez, I, I'm I'm normally not the guy who has his picture taken <laughs> in my line of work." So. Let me uh, just send him this one. And the fact that you didn't send it back and say, dude, come on.
0: <laughs> no, no, I love it. Uh, I just, <laughs> yeah, I, I would have probably like snuck some microphones into the shot somehow, too, you know, I'd, Photoshop. I'd, I'd, I'd-
1: that's kind of been a part of the discussion now too. Is like, how do we how do we incorporate some microphones into this picture?
0: Well, we'll we'll just do a, a crowdsource right now. Rock stars. <laughs> if the, if you're into that kind of thing, download Chris's photo off the website, <laughs> add some cool recording gear, and send it back to me, and I'll make sure Chris gets it. And uh, <laughs> and we'll send you a big thank you and a shout out.
1: that's outstanding
0: awesome um well cool so um your studio sounds awesome now and i guess it's brand new so you're you're sort of getting settled in uh do you want to talk about any particular recent projects that you're you're working on um stuff that's happening right now and i definitely want to get into uh next talking about uh, your nonprofit with charlie hunter what a cool story that must be
1: that's been a fun fun experience but yeah as far as recently um, I've been teaching uh, the past couple of years at uh, Tulane University in town, which is a fantastic university, and they just have never really had a music business department or or anything to augment the music um, uh, part of their curriculum. And I, I, they saw they caught wind of my um, my programs that I do for nonprofits for high school kids, specifically the Trombone Shorty Foundation and stuff, and it's everything from personal finance to how to set up and run a business, how to treat your band like a business, how to treat your band like a brand. And then, you know, we'll get into the production kind of thing and I'll, I'll teach them how to make a recording on their phone. You know, they think it's so daunting to get into recording and they re- and then I'll make them realize you've got the tools in your pocket right now, you know, and, and putting that stuff together has been a really cool adventure for the high school kids. Well, Tulane University caught wind of it, and they said, "Hey, do you think you could teach this uh, at a college level?" And I was like, "Sure." For a guy who's never been to college, I'll give it my try. <laughs> nice. And so um, they uh, they loved it, and it's been successful now. For um, for I think I'm going on my fifth year doing that. So in a lot of ways, I've I've uh, not been fighting the the have to make a record every single day fight. Uh, like I once was. And the other piece of it is, is that I, I get to w- kind of get the front row seat on the up and coming musicians that are coming through town and, and, uh, starting off their career from college. The, the, the cats who are smart enough to know, Hey, I want to take music seriously. And I don't want to get lost in the wash in a place like LA or New York or Nashville. I want to make a name for myself, uh, um, starting from the art and new Orleans is a great place to do that. So if you have the opportunity to come down to Tulane, you get that world-class education as well as kind of this immersion in the, in the artistic side of things. And so I've been, I've been working with a lot of uh, younger students uh, who are coming up. The revivalists were one of those bands and, um, and a band called Sexual Thunder and a band called uh, uh, Organized Crime has now broken off and started a, another band called Boogie Trio, which is really tearing it up on the festival circuit right now. Um, and so it, it, my, my father had an interesting observation over the holidays, which was like the football coach who's got a couple of Super Bowl rings but has gone back to coaching high school because the football is more pure
0: right right and
1: that's I, I think that's an apt analogy uh, for where I'm at right now is that I still work with my big dogs you know when they call, but I'm more excited right now about finding new talent and finding the up and coming uh, cats who are ready to 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 launch themselves out into the stratosphere
0: yeah well these are the new big the you know soon to be big dogs um, and you've certainly worked with some uh, Great people. I mean, you've got credits with Robert Plant, uh, Dr. John, Charlie Hunter. I saw him come play here. Um, He played at a local club, and -hmm. I was so excited when I heard that. And I went and bought a ticket, and I was just completely knocked out. What a trip. It was just him and a drummer here. Yeah. And he was such a character because he was dressed like he was because it just comes straight from a construction site or something <laughs> like that. And he looked yeah. very imposing. He looked like he would just kick your ass and then like plays all this incredible guitar stuff. Um, tell us about starting 30 Amp Circuit uh, with him. What's that all about?
1: So I've known Charlie for more than 20 years. He and I um, made a record together with uh, uh, the the drummer for Galactic. Uh, is a brilliant guy named Stanton Moore. and um, oh, yeah. We did uh, Stanton's first solo record together. Um, was that
0: all all cooked out?
1: All cooked out. Yeah, the producer yeah, great, was now, great uh, record. Dan Prothero. Thanks, man. Yeah, the Dan Prothero really had the vision for that, and was like he kind of had this idea that it was going to be like a classic Blue Note kind of vibe, all the way down to the album cover. And and I can't say enough about Dan and his talents as a producer, which would then lead me to talk about the musicians that were involved, and it was cats like Scarrick and charlie and uh you know a handful of new local new orleans cats but the core band was uh stanton on drums charlie on bass and guitar and then skerrick on saxophone and we kind of augmented it from there and and charlie and i really hit it off realized we kind of saw things the same way and just kept in touch and worked together over the years i produced a record for him in 2005 called copperopolis and um That was his trio, um, and we just went into the studio and spent a week having a blast. We did the pre-production in a live concert um, during Jazz Fest, and it was just, everything clicked. And so we realized we have this kind of interesting similarity to our perspective about music and creation, and that's about where the similarities end, because that dude is an alien. Like, he is so insanely talented. Charlie is? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. His, his mind is like nobody I've ever met. And I've met some weirdos. This well, dude so is,
0: describe to the rock stars what, what's different about his guitar. It's not, it's not <laughs> like everybody else's guitar.
1: No, it is not. Uh, he plays an eight-string, sometimes seven-string guitar that's basically the three lowest strings of a bass guitar and then the five to six highest strings of an electric guitar. And so... Um, he's had various instruments through the years and, and you'd have to pick his brain to find out exactly the mechanics of what he's doing. but basically it's I mean the lowest string on the instrument is as thick as an E string on a bass guitar and the highest string is you know a B or an E on a regular guitar and he plays both instruments at once. It's amazing to watch him do it. He's playing perfectly formed, perfectly articulated bass lines while comping and soloing on the single instrument it's really, really something to see.
0: Is this one of those things um, where his right hand comes over and he's playing the chords with his right hand too? or Or is all the fretting happening with his left hand?
1: It's all fretted on his left hand. He is voicing each chord to include the bass line that he wants to play. He plays the bass line basically with his thumb. So think of like a finger picking guitar style where the thumb is playing the bass notes and then your top three or four fingers are doing the pluck either for a Uh, an accompaniment or for a lead line uses a lot of hammer-ons and stuff like that when he's soloing but um just ridiculously funky bass lines happening on top of this great tasty guitar stuff like he can imitate the whole rhythm section from james brown (laughs) (laughs) it's it's ridiculous to see him play you really have to kind of see it to believe it that's Um, a trip man you know he's he's like i said some of the most Tasty and funky bass lines, like he's all over D'Angelo's. Um, I think he's on that song "Spanish Joint" all over uh, the Voodoo record, and it's like just insane how funky his playing is. And then when you realize that's not two dudes, that's one dude playing both instruments.
0: Now, do you do you know if he's sort of splitting out the bass strings to a bass amp and the guitar to a guitar amp, or is it all one amp? Any thoughts about that stuff?
1: He does, yeah. And when when he and I have recorded together. That's that's exactly what we'll do. Is we split it out. I'll take a di on the bass strings. He's got, you know, like I said, over the years he's got a million different configurations, and I can talk about the last one I recorded. Sure. And the next one might be completely different. But um, as far as the last time I recorded, it, it was uh, uh, pickups that were aligned with the bass strings that gave you predominantly the bass. Signal and I'd take a DI and a mic on that, and then in the mix we ended up throwing away the DI because the mic just sounded great. Um, and then on the high strings, he runs them. There's a separate set of pickups. At one time he was using Bartolini's or whatever. Like I said, he's he's always onto something new, like like Eddie Van Halen, just constantly right. making his equipment.
0: Right.
1: And um, but uh, the top strings will go through a pedal board and then into a guitar amp, usually some kind of Mesa Boogie. Um, a big part of his sound, uh, can include like a Leslie sound, like a, a um, a vibrato tremolo kind of vibe, almost like a fake Leslie or, a, um, what was the one that looked like a wah pedal? Um, but it's, uh, oh, damn, it's oh,
0: like a univibe or something yeah, like, like that. A uni-vibe, exactly.
1: And so he'll incorporate that in as a way to kind of give the guitar texture, uh, to another dimension. And, um. I've, you know, rarely he uses distortion, but I've recorded him doing some distortion before.
0: Nice. Uh, and then what, what about, um, some of your miking techniques for these amps? Anything you want to share about that?
1: Um, something that's interesting and I think valuable to the rock stars to hear about would be, um, he's the one who really turned me onto this idea of using an ISO box, which he had one custom built and it's basically a 10 inch bass speaker built into a cabinet that then has airspace above it. So think of a guitar cabinet in a box mm-hmm. so that you can put the, the, the speaker has its own space and airspace, and then the microphone has its own airspace, and you can close the whole thing off, and it's somewhat isolated from the rest of the room. And one of the cool things, he was always frustrated with the way the bass sounds in the headphones. And so what we did is we started taking the ISO box, um, and he would sit on it. So ah, nice. He's now feeling the bass, you know, tactile, uh, uh through the, you know, through a tactile uh, mode, and and then hearing whatever articulation he needs in the headphones, and that's really kind of a game changer, and it's something that I've used over the years, um, because you know so much of what we do now is in it involves home recording. It gives uh, you an opportunity to record at home if you don't have a proper isolation space. You, can you know.
0: Yeah, I, I recorded Michael Rhodes here, who's one of the A-list um, session guys in Nashville, bass player, mm-hmm. um, played on many, many master albums, um, and he he brought in to the session. And this was like more than 20 years ago. No, it was probably, probably about 20 years ago when I did the session. But he brought in a um, similar thing where it was like a little rolling seat, and this the bass speaker was facing upwards. Mm-hmm. And the mic was above it, and then the mic and then the seat closed on top of that. and he was just sitting on this thing. And so it was totally isolated, and he could feel his bass. and you know, there was no, like you said, no headphone issues. I love stuff like that. I love like really thinking outside the box. and
1: it really is. yeah, it's a creative way to solve a problem. And the simpler you can come up with those solutions, usually the better and the more transferable they are. and And that's a technique I've used in, you know, the most embarrassing and humble a uh, closet studio to, you know, million dollar large format studios. That same technique works wherever you are. Now, you know? did, have,
0: when you the, say you've used that technique, have you created one that belongs to you that you can take to different sessions or you mean I, you've used it with I, Charlie using his? I
1: did and I lost it over the years. <laughs> some, some guitar player got his hands on it and said, oh man, this thing sounds great. Why don't you just leave it here at my house? And I, I kind of lost track of it. But um, yeah, that that or just the idea of using a box, Isolate a guitar amp in the room with you um whether it's bass or guitar you know that's something that's super useful and uh i was at sam phillips recording with my friend uh matt ross spang yeah, and he's awesome. got a wall of these it's like a, a sofa almost and you flip open the the seat part of the sofa and there's room for an amp and a, a microphone and i realized these guys were on to this in 1962 you know <laughs> like oh, it, that's a it, trip Super useful way to do it, and I definitely am considering if I make any upgrades to the studio here at the house, I probably would do something like that. Build another one of those boxes, whether it's portable or not, but I think that's just a super useful thing to have. I, I've, I've seen some companies who've made them. I think Carvin made one for a while, but nothing's going to be as cool as making it yourself or um, – you know, getting with a friend who's a carpenter, you know, we all started off building speaker boxes for cars in our, <laughs> in our early days. So right it's not far off from that, you know?
0: All right. Well, I, hate, I hate to say it, but you're not going to get off that easy, man. So now <laughs> I got to ask you, how can you describe on the podcast, how you would build a box like that? So, cause you're going to have a lot of people intrigued who, who <laughs> want to go off and try it right now. Okay, give I- us
1: some tips. I'll get with my friend Rick who actually drew it up and I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you so that you can post it on the website for sure. All right.
0: All right I'll sure. do it. Um, that, this means of course that I'll get in trouble for having forgotten when this goes <laughs> out and then somebody will remind me and then I'll hustle I'll right and know, get it right done.
1: <laughs> get plans <laughs> from Rick. Um, but no, basically you'd start off by building a, a guitar cabinet and then build a box that's big enough to hold that guitar cabinet in it. And then um, you cut a door into that box that's big enough to fit a microphone stand to. They get complicated. You can put XLRs on the outside and seal them up with rubber weather stripping and stuff like that. There's tons of plans on the internet. What
0: goes on the inside? Do you sort of have to line it with something soft and fuzzy?
1: Yeah, I've had good experience with that, you know, the classic Owen Corning 705 stuff.
0: Mm -hmm. You line it
1: with that and, you know, if you're lazy, you'll deal with fiberglass shards for the rest of the life of that box. But if you're not lazy, you can cover it with cloth and make it nice. But it's definitely better to dampen the inside so that you you kind of just have that relationship between the microphone and the speaker and nothing else.
0: And then the box just closes on top of the lid. You could almost drop a combo down into the box.
1: That's it. Yeah. I've seen a, I've seen a handful of, of those as well where uh, you take a combo amp and just drop it inside and then, you know, a latch, like a Sessions latch on it, that'll seal the, the lid shut. Um, the other ones are, um, I've seen somebody do it with a drum case, like the, the a case from a kick drum, big 24-inch kick drum case. You put the amp in it, line it with blankets, throw a microphone in there, throw the top on it and get moving.
0: Ooh, that's clever. And then right. you just need a little hole on the side, or you could put an XLR jack directly on it and have a mic on a stand ready to go inside or something like that. Yep. Um, and then um, have you discovered that, uh, so you want it to be pretty thick wood though, right? So it's yeah, MDF, block and sound.
1: three quarter uh, or five, five eighths inch uh, thick MDF, the real dense um, um, fiber board, you know, it's not the kind of stuff you want to get wet, but um yeah, the thicker the better, and um, uh, you know it gets to be pretty heavy, so they tend to be small, uh, as small as you can afford to make them. The one that that Charlie and I use for his base, it's a ten-inch speaker inside of it, and the speaker's pointing straight up. So right. the whole thing, I think, you're probably when you sit on it, it's basically as high as a chair, so about twenty something inches, twenty six inches maybe, and uh, half of the volume of the empty space is for the speaker cabinet. And then the other half of the volume is where you put the microphone.
0: Cool. Cool. That's a great description. Thanks, man. Yeah. Um, and the, I think in the speaker cabinet, same thing. Now inside the speaker cabinet, like it like the inside of my NS10 speakers, that's where it's safe to just have a whole bunch of the pink fluffy insulation.
1: Totally. Right? You know, you can you can geek out on it. There's different um they used to call it Q and stuff like that, but like the the resistance that the speaker needs and the volume of the airspace you can kind of cheat the amount of volume and resistance by putting more uh insulation on the inside but yeah in my general experience it's just stuff it with with uh acoustic material whatever uh fiberglass or there's that stuff that looks like the air condition filter (laughs) you know just anything you can do to deaden that inside of that box behind the speaker tends to work better
0: yeah and that reminds me of some of the acoustical physics i remember learning that um you know if you so that if you took a buzzer and it was sitting on a tabletop and then you put a box over it it quiets down the volume of that buzzer but if you put insulation inside the box and put the box over the buzzer it quiets it quiets it down like a ton more
1: that's exactly it yeah it's, so, yeah. it's all about acoustic impedance you know you got you're taking sound from an area where there's a lot of volume and you're moving it towards a sound where they there isn't the ability to have a lot of volume and it tends to, to dissipate that energy really quickly. The same way light bends when it goes into an aquarium, you know, you stick a stick into an aquarium it looks like the light is bending Mm -hmm. acoustically. The same thing happens when you go from an acoustically active space to an acoustically neutral space is that the sound basically is bending rapidly. And so the more absorption you have, the more rapidly you bend the sound towards silence.
0: Sound benders. Right? Was it that? I think I used to have a good distortion pedal called the sound bender, didn't I? <laughs> or no, maybe that was one of those EQ booster pedals.
1: <laughs> the tone bender. That the was tone one.
0: bender. There you go. Recording Studio Rockstars Academy is the place you can go to take your recording, mixing, and mastering to the next level. And you can start right now with my free introduction to mixing course, Mix Master Bundle. This course will show you how to get pro-sounding mixes from your home studio with free and stock plugins and pro tools. And the best part is that these mixing techniques will work for you in any DAW, whether you are in Logic, Cubase, PreSonus Studio One, Reaper, or anything else. Are you ready to make your best record ever? then go to Mix Master Bundle to get started for free now or look for the clickable link in the show notes of this episode. Cool, man. All right, well, so let's see. Let's talk more about um, you know recording with um, Stanton Moore and and Charlie and stuff like that. How would you record Stanton's drums on a record like that?
1: Uh, On that particular record, um, a lot of it, again, came from Dan Prothero, who was producing it, and Dan is a really able engineer as well. Um, but he was totally. In, uh, bear in mind, this was 1997, 98. So you didn't have the internet where you could just toss out an idea like the Glenn Johns three microphone technique, right? And it couldn't iterate over and over again through a whole bunch of studio experiences because somebody read about it on the internet. It was, it was you know those kind in those days, information about those advanced technology tricks (laughs) you know recording technology tricks were were um
0: you had to be there
1: yeah you had to be there they had to be passed down anecdotally or you had to scour tons and tons of magazines sound on sound and the early days of tape op when it was just a folded up piece of paper and um uh mix magazine and even guitar player magazine i remember scouring guitar player magazines to to just find any gem that Jimmy Page would drop. Because right. that dude basically wrote the book on modern rock and roll recording. <laughs> you know, it's like you, you know, yeah, you could talk about the Tom Dowds and the 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 Bill Putnams, but really when it comes down to it, what Jimmy Page did for heavy and hard rock recording is it can't be measured, man. That dude really wrote the book.
0: Nice. I've also heard that he's incredibly close to the vest about his guitar techniques and stuff like that now from somebody else. So So maybe maybe he used to share more and maybe now he doesn't, or I don't know, maybe I got it all wrong.
1: (laughs) Even it was, like I said, it was the kind of thing that you'd have to dig through issues and issues of guitar player magazine in hopes that he would talk about what microphone he used for whatever, you know? And so, um, back then it was hard fought to get this information. And so, so Dan was real into this idea of doing the three microphone thing and the one microphone that we had three of, three tube condenser microphones, one of my favorite microphones of all time and our studio at the time, just happened to have three, was the Sony C37A.
0: Oh, it's a great mic, yeah.
1: Basically, yeah, it's basically the poor man's U47. Like, it's as, it's as close as I've come to a 47 that's not a 47 or trying to be. It's a and, little bit smaller diaphragm too, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. and And it's, you know, it was it was basically Sony's late sixties answer to the, the big classic German microphones that were all over the place. Mm -hmm. And it has a sound that's all of its own, you know, it's really an incredible microphone uh, in and of itself. But when you start to think of it in context of like a Neumann, the only thing that can really compete is a classic U 47. And so in that sense, it was a great microphone for us. And, you know, uh, when we were first starting out, Daniel Lamois had Kingsway studio in town. And so we would try to hang by the back door and learn whatever secrets blew out of the window from that place. And we yeah, all I'm I'm
0: heard- glad you brought up Daniel. I wanted to ask about that. When I was interning at Woodland Studios, he came up there to work with Emmy Lou Harris. Yep. And he was he had his studio down in New Orleans and he was just super cool to meet. And I knew some people who went down there and it just I was very intrigued by it. I saw pictures of it. It was like this. Uh, Kingsway right
1: yep that was the spot yeah, yeah it, was,
0: it was like old funky real, cool looking rooms in an old mansion it was this old
1: mansion right? on Esplanade Avenue and um i mean it's probably a 10,000 square foot mansion so you had plenty of space yeah but and the the acoustic spaces were amazing and um it, you know, it wasn't a proper studio by any stretch, but it had such a vibe, you know, R.E.M. and U2 and yeah. – it's just the list goes on and on of people who he recorded there. But um, one of them, it's, it's interesting too that you mentioned Lou Harris, but her Wrecking Ball album um, – the vocal sound on that is a Sony C37 and that has been one that was that's that record was one of the reasons we were all sideways about that microphone. It was like that ah vocal. Oh my god so that the C37 definitely came to our group through the the fact that Lamwa was here in town and you know Malcolm uh Burn and, and Mark yep. Howard and Mike Napolitano and Trina Shoemaker all those guys were our teachers because we were we were trying to be like them you know I know I know Nappy yeah, Nappy is, I, I can't say enough about that dude, man. He's given us all so much in the creative recording community down here. That's a special dude too, man.
0: Cool, man. All right, so tell us what you remember about using those three um, C-37s on the drums to kind of get that Glenn John sound.
1: So it was, the, 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 the best way, and I'm going to encourage everybody who hears this to experiment, try it. Go and screw it up so that when you get it right, you remember, and you remember all all the way down to your bones, because it starts off, you pick a spot, basically, I choose the lug closest to the drummer's kick drum knee. So the lug on the snare that's closest to the kick drum kind of creates this galactic central point for the drum kit. So you start from that spot, meaning that all the sounds of the drum kit are closest to that spot, basically. Right, right. So if you start from that spot, usually on the snare, and you measure up two and a half drumstick heights, then you put the first microphone right there, directly overhead, like a mono overhead mic, two and a half drumstick heights above. So then the next one is going to be two and a half drumstick lengths from the same spot on the snare, except drawing a line through the floor tom, And that's where you put the second mic. So then the third mic, which I think is actually the most important, is two and a half drumstick lengths straight out in a line that goes in front of the kick drum. So straight out through the kick drum in front of the kit. So it's almost as if you were micing the kit with one microphone from the front and then, again, one microphone from the overhead. And then you have this weird one microphone thrown off to the side by the floor tom. Now, but,
0: now the one over by the floor tom, how how – High, up, or down do you think it needs to be?
1: So in my experience, the best distance and height is basically to where you're you're drawing a line that you can see both heads of the floor tom and the snare if your eyeball was the microphone diaphragm. So you don't want to go so low that you're below the rim, but you don't want to go so high that you're starting to get up in cymbal world. So right. You just want it to look right over the head of the floor tom- at the so it's about at the height of the top of the floor tom
0: and it's and it's and it's potentially catching the underside of the crash and the ride symbol and stuff like that so it's almost like the overhead mic and the and the floor tom mic are seeing both sides of the symbols
1: yeah exactly and and from two different distances so it it starts to bring up and and like i said since it's been on my radar for so long, it's not always a practical mic technique to use. And I, I have to give that caveat because especially if you're in a session in a big studio and your clients relying on a, a specific sound, you're not gonna get like a dream theater or a right. uh, you know a metal. no, no Dave wackle
0: drums that yeah, way. It's
1: not gonna happen, you know. Um but You know, that said, it teaches you some important lessons that I think are worth talking about. And the first is that you can think of microphones as having a focal length, the same way that a lens on a camera would. And so the same way you would mess with depth of field uh, on a camera where how much of the image is in focus, choosing which microphone can really determine how much of that image is in focus, if you will, to to borrow the analogy even further. So that floor tom mic in the Glenn John setup It's got the floor tom front and center, but the snare, the whole thing being two and a half uh, drumstick lengths away from the snare means that every microphone is equidistant from the snare. So each microphone is going to have the snare in the same focus, and I think that's a big part of... How that sound comes together when you put all three, and then you can pan the overhead a little bit to the left, and you pan the floor tom way off to the right, and you kind of can fake a stereo sound out of it, which is how Zeppelin did it. But I like doing all three, keeping them in mono, and then doing room mics to create the stereo. That's another useful way of doing it, mm-hmm. and it becomes super critical to make sure the drums sound like you want them to sound. And that to take it back to the Stanton Moore record, it was Dan's idea to do the the glenn john's mic technique but it wouldn't have worked if stanton's drums weren't jaw-droppingly amazing sounding to begin with and he was such a great player so bear that in mind as you use it you know
0: well it's totally true when you experiment with these three mic techniques um that's one of the first things i discovered i remember trying to add in like a a kick mic right where the where it might normally go and i'm like why does that kill the whole thing that i had going and then i was like well why don't i just Try and have that the same distance as these other mics so that when that beater of the kick hits, it's it's being heard at the same time in all three mics. And all of a sudden, everything just came into focus and it was
1: pretty it's cool. It. it really is a great analogy to use thinking about it in focus because you're taking it from multiple perspectives. And that's where we borrow a page from Hollywood. You don't have to, you know, I don't have to record this exactly like you think it was recorded. But if I can convince you it was recorded this way, then it doesn't matter how I actually recorded it. So if you're trying to get a real pristine, pure, verite, I was there kind of sound, you can use 10 microphones to do that. As long as they come together in a way that convinces the listener, I'm hearing this pure, he must have only used two microphones and a bloom line or something like that, whatever whatever it takes in the end. But um, if you... If you start messing with the phase of things and the time of things, like I said, it's a great technique to experiment with because it's hard and you can make mistakes doing it quickly. And those mistakes are what make you good fast.
0: Awesome, man. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that tip. That's a great one. Um, we're going to take a break now for just a second. We'll come back in for the jam session and uh, stick around, Rockstars, because I'm going to dig into questions about things like how in the world you record the Rebirth brass band <laughs> and working with Dr. John and B.B. King and others. Um, a reminder, Rockstars, that you'll find links to what we're talking about in the show notes. And hopefully, if Chris and I have our act together, we'll have that, uh, that, that guitar box ready for you. So you can check it out there too. the design ideas. Um, and if you're on your mobile device, just click through and the, and the, the uh, link should be right there. So you can check it all out. And of course, there's a playlist of YouTube videos. So you can go hear a bunch of Chris's awesome, awesome work. We'll see you guys in just a minute for the jam session. It was 1971 in a New York City basement, when Eventide revolutionized the audio world by introducing the world's first studio effects processor, the Instant Phaser and the first digital effect, the H910 Harmonizer. Eventide soon followed with the Instant Flanger, Omnipressor, SP2016 Reverb, and H949 and H3000 Harmonizers, which have been favorites of A-list mixers like Michael Brower, Joe Ciccarelli, Mick Kozowski, and Dave Pensato, and heard on countless hit records over the decades. Today, Eventide brings all that sound to your stage and studio with modern solutions like the H9000 Harmonizer, Complete line of guitar pedals, including the versatile H9 Max, and transformative plugins like MicroPitch, Fizion, Black Hole, and Mangled Reverb. Take your next mix in your studio to a whole new level. Go to Eventide.com or click the link in the show notes below. Are you sick of bothering family and neighbors when you're just trying to rehearse or record your music? Do outside noises or computer fans get into your studio mics and ruin your recordings? You could book a pro studio to record every time, but that would add up quickly, and doing permanent construction to soundproof your studio can easily cost up to $100,000 or more. Trust me, I know. And you can't take that with you when you eventually move the studio. Don't you wish it was an easy solution right now? Whisperoom Room ISOBooths offers a simple way to install a comfortable, quiet, ventilated ISO booth in your studio with easy line of sight for recording vocals, guitar amps, or even drums in a variety of sizes. For 30 years, Whisperoom Room has been solving studio isolation needs worldwide with ISO booths that are shippable, portable, and can be assembled in an afternoon. Now you can get pro vocal recordings right in your home studio, practice whenever you want, and start using real guitar amps again. Get off the 4x4 or 4x6 boosts when you mention Recording Studio Rockstars at whisperroom.com or click the link in the show notes below. Are you using a Mac in your recording studio? Are you tired of feeling like the studio setup you worked so hard to create is becoming obsolete too quickly? Wouldn't it feel great to have a trusted friend to help you keep your existing Mac and studio setup current and relevant so that you can focus on the thing you love most, which is making great music? Well, now you can rely on OWC, Otherworld Computing, which you can find at OWC.com, whose mission it is to help you get the most mileage out of your Mac. Whether you need to upgrade your RAM, install an SSD, add more connectivity, or simply find a great used Mac that's ready to rock, OWC will help take your studio far into the future with a vast library of DIY install videos, 24-7 friendly support, and free shipping in the U.S. on most items over $49. Why get frustrated and ditch your existing computer when you can take your studio far into the future with OWC? Learn more at OWC.com and find out how awesome your Mac can be at OWC. Hey, rock stars! we're back now for the Jam Session. My guest today is Chris Finney, joining us from Nolene's. And um, we're talking about great, making re- great records down there, working on the groove and, and uh, the boogie. You ready to boogie, man? <laughs> I'm ready
1: to boogie. Let's get it on
0: all right cool cool um so let's see the other instrument i wanted to ask you about because you had mentioned uh working with stanton moore and doing drums uh and charlie hunter on guitar and sax talk a little bit about how you um have discovered a great way to record saxophone
1: um you know it really is kind of one of my favorite things to record so you have to start by loving it which means that you have to learn what you hate about the saxophone before you learn how what you love about the saxophone and I'm, I'm not a big fan of the soprano or the alto sound, so I always struggled with how do I get these soprano and alto sounds to sound appealing and exciting for me. And so yeah. it was like ribbon mics, always ribbon mics. The Coles 4038 is one of those microphones that are going to pry out of my dead hands. I'm never getting rid of <laughs> I have four of them, and I will never, ever get rid of them. It's one of the most versatile and useful ribbon microphones of all time. And so I started – I started looking at that stuff. And like we were saying earlier about trying to find whatever piece of information you could before the internet existed. Um, I remember seeing a picture of John Coltrane recording with a RCA 44 and, uh, Neumann U 47 put right together. Um, and I remember thinking, okay, this is a good place to start. Of course, it's two of the rarest and most <laughs> desirable microphones on the planet. Of course. But you put those two together and you're going to nail the, the saxophone sound pretty much. Whatever that, that player is giving you, you're going to get it. So for me, it started with how do I tame the shrillness of an alto or a soprano and make it sound as beautiful in the ensemble as the, the barries and the tenors do to my, my ear? And it, it came out of that ribbon microphone. Um, kind of effort where a ribbon microphone is a little bit more lazy of a microphone. It's not as prompt about how it reproduces high frequencies. It's a little bit, you know whatever. We'll get to that ten k. yeah, cool, whatever. And so um, the the darkness, the apparent darkness of a ribbon microphone really can um, complement the the overly brightness of a, of a saxophone, those those harmonics that come off of a saxophone can be pretty shrill, and I find that using a ribbon microphone, whether it's the only microphone or one of a couple of microphones, I think a ribbon is a key piece to recording brass in general, but saxophone in specific.
0: Um, you know, it's, I, it's got me thinking about some of the experiments we do when we're recording um drums when we're recording even acoustic guitar. So for example, acoustic guitar, you always see the mic out by the 12th fret kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And that seems pretty standard and it sounds pretty great. But then occasionally you experiment with something like, well, what does it sound like to the guitar player? What if I just put a mic up where the guitar player's ear is looking down? What does that sound like? And you can discover that that sounds pretty amazing too. Have you ever explored um, saxophone actually from the perspective of the player's
1: ear? Okay, so this is a crazy story. The um, the I got I've worked with Harry Connick Jr. on and off for a lot of years. His producer is a very close friend of mine, a guy named Tracy Freeman. And Harry and Tracy went to high school together, so that's how long and tight their connection is. So I've gotten an opportunity to to help Tracy pull off a lot of things over the years for Harry. That Harry just as an artist goes, oh yeah, just do that. And we, as the production team, have to go. How the shit do we do that? Or how do we, you know, like how do we pull this off? You know, probably like 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 George Martin felt when John Lennon said, "I want you to tie me up and spin me around the microphone." You know, it's like how what? You know, <laughs> so um, one time we got a, 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 a we were doing a great performances for PBS, and it was uh, recorded uh, by David Hewitt up in in New York at the Nederlander theater and and on Broadway. I think Ryan, his son was uh, assisting him before Ryan Hewitt was one of the, that's great. Yeah. Both those
0: guys have been on my podcast too.
1: Oh man. Awesome guys, both. And you know, I like to give Ryan a hard time because he's having a hell of a career right now. Um, but uh, the, uh, uh, the, the recordings were impeccable, but it was something like 150 channels or 164 channels or something like that. And so it's obviously it's going to be a big band and there's some you know more creative mic techniques like zone, if you want to think of it as zone defense versus man-to-man. There's, there's some microphones that are covering a whole section of, of people, but then there were some microphones that were uh, close mics and they ended up being really redundant. And the majority of those were clip-on microphones that, number one, allowed Harry to communicate with the band off, you know, like basically off camera or, or when they weren't performing, he could call the next song or make adjustments in between, and it didn't go out into the house on the PA. It was only something that was recorded because as an abundance of caution, I guess. And so there was one saxophone piece where he was on a lavalier clip-on type microphone, to uh do his solo because he's walking out into the the crowd it may have been a trombone don't don't get me to lying on exactly what instrument it was but um they walked out on stage to play the instrument and the lavalier mic was failing and so it was like you had less than ideal sound all the way through now they fixed it really quickly but in that moment, that was the moment that we had to make advantage of. It was that it, it, I think it, the, the sax performance overlapped Harry's introduction of the player. So you couldn't separate the two. We were forced to use this audio that was not great in this one particular moment. And mm-hmm. we, we realized, holy crap, Harry's got a clip on mic and the trombone player or whoever it was a sax player uh, 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 had a clip on mic. Let's listen to what the clip on mic sounded like. Now this is,
0: this is up near the lapel. Like, like yeah. if you were shooting a video and you'd clip it up on your.
1: Exactly right. It was not meant be an instrument microphone at all. It was meant to be a microphone so that the musicians could communicate verbally outside of the microphones that were recording their instruments. Okay. You know, dig it. Uh, the kind of the way you do with, uh, in-ear monitors. Now you'll have a microphone that only speaks to people on the in-ear and the crowd doesn't hear you saying, Hey drummer, tighten up, <laughs> you know, or whatever. um, so it was that kind of system. And what we realized was the, the good microphone, I'm, I'm making quote fingers as I say that, the good microphone was screwing up. But we had these lavalier microphones on everybody, and we were able to actually construct part of the performance for this um, saxophone, I think it was, from the microphone that was clipped on his lapel for his communication stuff. And it was a really neat sound. It Unfortunately, we couldn't explore it for, further because we had the rest of the concert already mixed and it was like in surround sound. And it was a really complicated mix. Like I said, 160 something channels. And, but it, it, it kind of was a thing in the back of our head. Hey, we should explore that at some point. And we obviously never have, but, um, the, the idea that putting a clip on microphone as the musician is going to hear it might give you a different perspective that you weren't anticipating.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Well, I know it works great on acoustic, and a lot of times, you know, that mono overhead on a drum can end up coming down really close, so it's almost about the same height as the the drummer's head. You know, totally.
1: Yeah, that that, that Charlie Hunter record, Copperopolis, is the Charlie Hunter trio. Um, the drummer was uh, Derek Phillips, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, he uh, we we put a Neumann U47 right next to his right ear, and then I think I just had a kick and snare mic in addition um to that and the main drum sound on that recording is this neumann right next to derek's head
0: oh that's great man that's super cool all right well let's talk about some other stuff um let's keep going on uh brass you've recorded the rebirth brass band i mean that is just massive (laughs) talk a bit about how you let's say let's say i got the call and it was like hey man you got to come record this brass band and i have actually done that at bonnaroo um And, and it was it was fun, but I mean, we just had to put close mics on everything and sort of figure it out. But if you were hitting the studio, like, w- what should the rock stars know about how to approach a really big section like that? And here's an important question for you as a, a New Orleanser. What, what do you guys call yourselves down there? New Orleansers? Little Indians? Little Indians? New, New Orleanians. New Orleanians, sorry. New Orleanians, great. Um, how do we record tuba?
1: Well, you have to get creative. I'll start with the tuba and then talk about how to record the rest of the band. But the tuba, again, going back to this idea of recording in multiple perspectives at once. Just think about when you mic a drum kit. You got an inside kick drum mic. You might have an outside kick drum mic. But when you blend them, you can't really tell. We as engineers can take it apart and say, oh, that's an inside mic blended with an outside mic. But the average listener just hears kick drum. And so the same thing happens with the whole entire kit. You've got your overheads, which are picking up the whole entire kit, but then you've got a microphone on the snare. And sometimes that has utility in the sense that I can turn the snare up independently of everything else. But if you get the mix part of it just right from that original blend of microphones, in essence, what you're doing is you're recording the drum kit from multiple perspectives. And when you blend those perspectives, your ear hears all of the perspectives at once, kind of like parallel compression. You're hearing the compression and the clean signal at the same time. Your ear doesn't bother to take it apart and go, oh, well, he's using parallel compression. Your ear just says, wow, that sounds cool. Right. And so I think that's one of the tricks to recording brass in general is to try to get it from multiple perspectives. So on the tuba, you got or the sousaphone technically, um, you are... You gotta get that low fundamental because it's the bass. It's the it's the whole bottom of the song. You have to have this nice fat low end to tell the story. And then the next piece of it is the articulation of it's it is an actual brass instrument. So you you wanna be able to hear those brass overtones. And then the third perspective is. The, the shout part of it, the fact that the, every sound you hear from a tuba or a sousaphone is coming out of this giant bell that's like almost three feet across, <laughs> you know, it's it's like putting your hands next to your mouth when you yell. It really magnifies the sound. So ideally, to record the tuba, you take a 58, SM58, and you wrap it in a towel and you put some rubber bands around it so that it doesn't clank around when you drop it down the throat of the tuba. Wow. And there's a spot on the tuba where the the horn connects to the body of the tuba. So that think about if uh, you guys are gonna have to look it up and see, but um, if you're dismantling a tuba to travel it to, to to travel with it, you unscrew these three set screws at the throat of the horn where the horn becomes the bell, and the bell will separate into two separate pieces. You can stack them, put them in a case, and hop on an airplane, but when the horn is assembled, that seam where those set screws are becomes the perfect pli- place for your microphone to end up. So when a tuba is playing in a rock setting, in a rock club, like a Tipitina's here in, in New Orleans or whatever, the sound guys usually just will throw sound guys and gals, to be clear. We have some amazing female recording engineers and and live engineers in this city. It has to right be on Um but what they do is they'll just drop this 50. I've seen it work with a 57, a 58, a beta 52, uh a D112, anything that you would use on a kick drum or a bass, uh, you can throw down the throat of that horn, and you're not gonna get a lot of it's just super clean low end. You Mm -hmm. get each note from its lowest note. But it's not, you know, an audiophile recording of the horn, but it really works if you're gonna put the horn through a bass amp like Matt Perine, or a PA system like Kirk Joseph, you know, uh, you've really got. And so we borrowed a couple of those ideas in doing rebirth because a lot of this music is meant to work on the street first. So yeah. there you kind of have to start from that distant perspective. You know, the, the only the brass band players and the people marching in the parade are going to hear the, 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 the horns and the drums with their head, basically inside the instrument, the rest of us hear it from 20, 30 feet away. And I think growing up here, I can remember begging our folks, my brother and sisters and I begging our folks to take us under the bridge where the, the overpass was so that we could hear the bands as they marched under the bridge. Uh, because the sound was so intense underneath the bridge. You know? <laughs>
0: That's great. Man.
1: And, um, so it's it you know you you want to kind of think in that that sense of perspective. So you start with the microphone down inside a fifty eight wrapped in a towel so it doesn't clink uh, inside the horn, and then you can take the cable and wrap it around the mouthpiece to keep the horn, the microphone going deeper in it, and it really doesn't disturb how the player interacts with the horn. And I think that's a key piece to mention is that no matter what we do in the studio, the last thing we want to do is change the way a musician behaves or has to sit or you never want to make a musician uncomfortable for the way it sounds. Now, if the musician wants to get uncomfortable to make it sound better, that's on them, but it's, I'm less inclined to ask a musician to be uncomfortable for my microphone, you know? Yeah.
0: And, and a quick reminder, a lot of times if you work with musicians that are maybe new territory in the studio for them, they're not going to know what comfortable is just yet. They will, they'll just look at your mic and they'll automatically do something awkward because they think they're supposed to. Yeah. So you you have to really watch out for that.
1: Yeah. Somebody, somebody who's inexperienced, they'll grab a ribbon microphone and, and scream into it because they don't realize this is just for the horn at five feet away. (laughs) This is not uh, for the, for the screaming voice at one inch away, you know? Yeah. Um, But yeah, so, so to continue with the tuba uh, the next place you're going to have that, that, that match of, nice rich low end with the beautiful articulation and overtones that brass can give you is right there at the edge of the bell so we invented this piece there was a sound guy named brent Moreland who actually invented the thing we never followed through with mass producing them but it's basically four um bungee cords that he tied in a knot at the center and then you could hook each end of the bungee cord onto the bell of the saxophone, north, south, east, west, and put a microphone in the knot at the center. And it would actually suspend a microphone in the bell of the tuba.
0: Like perfectly at the, the opening of the bell.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And those worked great. Yeah. Every club in town eventually built one and had one in their box so that when a tuba player would come through, you just, Hop the thing on, and they seem to have lost favor lately. But I have one that I made, um, that I use in the studio, and that was part of the rebirth tuba sound on on Phil Frazier, who's one of the greatest tuba players of all time. It has, yeah. It, I can't stress enough how valuable the musicians are in the process of making great recordings. So, um, starting with the the mic down inside the throat, then you do the one suspended on the we call it the tuba loom. Um, nice (laughs) you suspend it on the tuba loom and then if you have isolation in the room you can put a microphone a few feet out from the bell to kind of catch that shout voice
0: from uh, outside the bells pointing at the mic or you're sort of in front of the tuba player so there's nothing coming from the the um, valves area or all those bends of tubing and all that
1: no, nothing useful. Uh, the mouthpiece just sounds like farts and the, the keys just <laughs> click. So they're not helping you in any, you know what I mean? They, they aren't valuable sounds as compared to a saxophone where there's a sound coming out of those keys.
0: Right, because they open up right there.
1: Yeah, totally. And it's changing You know the harmonics of it. And, and in fact, if you're going to record sax with only one microphone, try to make it an equilateral triangle between the microphone, the bell of the saxophone and the keys of the saxophone that seems to be the spot, like you were saying, the 12th fret on the guitar. Mm -hmm. That kind of equidistant spot between the bell, the keys, and the microphone on a saxophone is crazy, crazy useful for a solo saxophone.
0: Good tips, man. I I probably needed to interview you before I went and recorded a whole bunch of saxophone. But um, these are great, man. I love this stuff. Now, um, how about the rest of a big band like the Rebirth Brass Band? I mean, what size studio, if you're going to have a a big band and how how big of a space do you need where are you going to start thinking about these other mics
1: so ideally ideally because it's it's performance oriented it's not a brass band is not something that's going to translate if you record each instrument one at a time so you have to find a way to get the whole band performing at once and in fact The historically, the best brass band recordings have happened in a live concert that just happened to be captured in an interesting way. So the best brass band records, I think, come from this perspective of two microphones, two or more microphones in the room, maybe in a stereo pair. It's kind of taking a picture like a master shot would on a camera um, where you're kind of taking a picture of a whole entire band at once. And then if you put close mics in there, they're to, they're to reinforce it. Again, going from that idea of multiple perspectives, the way you mm-hmm. would do a drum kit. I've got mm-hmm. maybe a stereo pair out front in the room, but then I'm going to blend in the close kick drum mic until it sounds like I've tricked your ear into hearing a nice fat kick drum in a room. And so you want to do the same thing with the horns. Basically, for the Rebirth uh, rebirth of New Orleans record, which won a Grammy, we recorded it – We. <laughs> We were totally into doing orchestras and stuff for, um, uh, for film scores, but we didn't get enough of that work. And one of the things that we were totally intrigued by, by doing film scoring work was the Decatree. Right. And so one of the things Tracy Freeman, uh, uh, uh worked on that record with me as well. He was a producer on that rebirth record. And one of the things we discussed was, dude, what if we recorded this like you would an orchestra? and a rock band at the same time because we were trying to figure out where do you place somebody like the rebirth brass band they're half rock band half orchestral you know concert band so we started with a decatry in the room with the band all at once and got the sound that way and then we decided there was too much drums and tuba bleeding in with the rest of the horn line so we ended up moving the drums and tuba into an isolation room So you have to have minimal, I would say, enough room to set the whole band up at once and step about 10 feet in front of them and put up two microphones. And that's where you start.
0: How how many people in a band like that?
1: Uh, Minimum, you're going to have six. You're going to have three on the back line, bass drum, snare drum, and tuba. And then on the front line, you're going to have minimum one sax, one trombone, and one trumpet. And then if it's a bigger band like Rebirth, they'll double up. They'll have two trombones, two, sometimes three trumpets, and a saxophone uh, with the bass drum, snare drum, and tuba as the back line.
0: Wow. Um, And then what about some of the mic choices you might use for the different instruments in that big configuration?
1: So I can tell you for sure, if you've ever heard a recording that I had any say so in, and there's a trombone involved, I'm either using a Coles 4038 or a RCA 44.
0: Okay. Dig it. I, I feel like in some videos I saw you send me, uh, Um, maybe it was not a naughty professor with David Shaw. It looked like there were maybe some RCA 77s going on. It was, wasn't a brass band, but
1: exactly. a brass yeah, that's a more of a horn section, but yeah, the 77 D is very close to a 44 BX. It's, important to note that a 77 dx sounds completely different okay 77 d sounds like a coles 4038 or an rca 44 that that lazy fat dark ribbon sound whereas
0: yeah, the, the dx is a little more mid-rangey and a little more top
1: yeah exactly the, the the dx if you really want to put your finger on the dx sound a lot of the early louis armstrong trumpet was a dx and um sam cook um, uh, for his vocals no on the drums
0: oh interesting all right that cool
1: recording of summertime the drum sound on that in my mind at least i don't know how true it is in my mind i'm utterly convinced that is an rca 77 dx because that's exactly what that shit sounds like
0: okay cool and i i know we've had uh success using that for distorted electric guitars in the past too but we didn't put it right on an amp we sort of like Look down at an amp and just got really cool sounds
1: with it, too. Yeah, you kind of give it give it some space. You want to let the air do its job. Nothing mixes as well as air. So if you have yeah. sounds to blend in the air, you're halfway there.
0: Yeah. All right. Um, and then what about um, mics uh, on stuff like the drums in the back line?
1: The, that stuff is actually really simple. The, the, the hardest part about somebody like Rebirth is each brass band is going to want a little bit different sound out of their bass drum. So like Rebirth wants to sound more like a marching band on the street. So I think the, that's a 414 on one side and SM57 on the beater side. So that I could just kind of control the articulation of the, the beater he's holding. He's playing it by hand with a, with a mallet. Mm-hmm. And so on the 414 side, I wanted to get more of that head and shell vibe. And on the 57 side, I wanted to get that mid-rangey attack that comes from the beater hitting the head. Um, and it's a blend of those two as compared to somebody like the soul rebels brass band, they want to have more of a hip hop sound. And so a beta 52 right up against the bass drum still isn't going to give you enough low end to make them happy. Right. So you really have to follow the, what the musician wants. Um,
0: So what, how do you get a more low end out of it? If it's not giving you enough right off the bat?
1: Yeah, you kind of have to, that's where, you know, Guys like Guy Charbonneau's words resonate in my head. If you do not turn a knob, you, why are you an engineer? It's like, <laughs> there you you go, crank right. that EQ, buddy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> dig it, dig it. Um, and then uh, you've got a snare too. Is that just an SM57?
1: Usually a SM57. And I, I'm, I'm going to shoot myself in the foot and make these things more valuable than they need to be. But the Western Electric or Altec 633A commonly called the salt shaker is one of the sickest snare drum microphones in the history of the world
0: and that's a that's a tube mic isn't it
1: no it's a dynamic mic and it's omni it's a real weird like early 60s like 1962 63 was basically the sm57 of 1962 and uh there's pictures of john f kennedy talking into him and haile selassie and it's just like that era and um uh it's a dynamic microphone. It was made by Altec and Western Electric here in the States. And they they used to cost a hundred bucks. You could find them on eBay. And they call them a salt shaker because they actually look like a little salt shaker with holes in the top. They're made of, of uh steel or like they're iron or something There's some kind of really hit uh heavy significant metal so that if the snare drummer accidentally hits it which happens in a brass band you're not crying because he just destroyed your microphone right totally and the sound of it it's the most open and bright sounding dynamic microphone i've ever heard i can't i bought i bought numerous ones i, I think i own three of them just because i never want them to go away and there uh, was that's I'm, cool you could find them on ebay for a couple hundred bucks and um then word got out about them somebody wrote about them in tape op or something like that and then all of a sudden you've got 500 dollar ones on eBay and I was like man screw this I don't, I don't you know so I did some more research and I found out that Northern Electric was Western Electric in Canada and it's the same exact microphone but everybody goes onto the eBay and searches Western Electric or Altec 633 nobody searches Northern Electric 633 so there's my secret so oh, those gear hounds out there, go search Northern Electric instead of Western Electric whenever you want some old Westrex or, or Western Electric or Alltech piece of gear. It was also made in Canada as Northern Electric. And you know, honestly, just,
0: we, we love that stuff, man. You know we love that. We loved that when there was no internet and we still love that, hearing these like secret, secret old school vintage tools that you can go searching for.
1: Yeah, that's totally it, man. And they totally useful because they're still affordable. A couple hundred bucks is not going to break the bank of anybody's recording budget. And it's a super useful and versatile tool. You know, the the, the thing that encourages experiment, try it on different stuff. I know it works great on snare and I kind of don't experiment with it too much after that. But I've used them as room mics. I've used them as you ever do the the, um, the build your own PZM where you take a microphone and you you put it on a stand and you point it as close to the floor without touching as you can get or close to a wall.
0: Not recently enough. So describe that trick some more.
1: So, so basically a PZM microphone, pressure zone microphone is a microphone that the diaphragm is parallel to uh, a flat surface, like a piece of metal or a think of a card, basically like a, a, a postcard with a microphone on it. That's uh, pointing at the card, but there's a tiny little gap in between the microphone and the, the, the card, whatever it is made out of metal or whatever. And it ends up uh, being what they call the boundary effect. Um, uh, and they, they, they're sometimes called a boundary microphone. You see them a lot in conference rooms where they put them on conference tables, because in essence it turns the entire surface of the conference table into a microphone, right? Because that diaphragm is pointing directly at that, the the, the starter surface, whether it's a card or the conference table or a wall or whatever, um, basically any sound that hits that entire surface is going to find its way to the diaphragm of that microphone. And so if you take a 57, for example, and you say you're looking for an interesting room sound for your drums, um, provided there's a little bit of energy floating around in the room to begin with some hard walls or whatever, you can take your 57 and, and just like you were micing the wall, as if it was a guitar speaker, you're going to mic the, the wall and move the microphone closer and closer and closer to the wall. To be clear, the microphone is perpendicular to the wall and move it closer and closer until you have like maybe a quarter inch gap or even an eighth inch gap. Um, and go listen to that. (laughs) Try compressing the hell out of it. That sound will scare the pants off of you sometimes.
0: That's awesome. I got to try that. I, I haven't, um, you know, I, I've, Tend to put room mics up for the drums, ambient mics, and they're kind of near the wall. But I forget to try something as bold as just put it right up and point it at the wall and let the wall be what picks up that whole drum kit.
1: Totally, or the back of a gobo. You know, like a lot of studios will have a a, a gobo uh, or go between that has absorbent on one side and hard on the other side, so that you can kind of control an ambience. I find like if you got a drum kit and you put some gobos up around it. And the back surfaces away from the drum kit are hard surfaces. Go ahead and put a microphone on those and see what happens.
0: And it's just a reminder, rock stars, to take time out. You know, um, have a drum kit out there in your studio. Have a friend who can, or an assistant, or somebody who can grab a mic and just turn it up in the control room, and not during a session when you're pressed for time. Um, just have somebody move around the room and. And try the mic in all kinds of different locations, just so that you can have that experience of hearing all these unexpected sounds that exist in your studio space that you didn't even know were there, you know?
1: Totally, totally. Accidents provide some of the sweetest inventions that you, you never would have found that in a million years. But because you accidentally plugged, you were working quick, and you're trying to keep up with the band and you patched something wrong, and you pulled it up, and you went, holy cow, that's cool. <laughs> you know, you kind of yeah. file that away, and you either make it work, or, or finish it. I, I, I remember Daniel Lenoir saying something along the lines of like, a brilliant record is not, go record and then sit down and say, okay, I'm going to put on my genius hat and do all my genius shit right now. It doesn't work like that. A brilliant record is genius moments that you collected and preserved all the way from the beginning to the end.
0: Ah, oh, that's great.
1: Right. I love that. I love that concept, this idea that they're always around you. And our job is really to kind of ferry them and shepherd them towards the end of the recording. I love that concept.
0: That's great. Um, One other tip that comes to mind when you're going to do this, like if you have somebody and they're moving the mic around and you're listening, you end up with a recording and that can be really exciting. But what's frustrating is you listen to the recording, you're like, crap, where was the mic right there? It sounded so amazing. (laughs) So a couple of tricks that I try is to have the person with the mic just continually say into the mic where they are in that moment. So you keep getting checked in or another one is just simply turn a video camera on and have that in sync or something like that, okay. where you can just watch it later and you can hear exactly what was going on.
1: Yeah, that's a good Whatever yeah. you can do to preserve the cool ideas, you know, whatever it takes.
0: Yeah. Cool, man. All right. Well, so let's talk about uh, recording Dr. John, man. Tell what? us about that. Um, you know, he's an amazing performer he's a legend he still makes amazing stuff today you know and
1: well, unfortunately he just passed june 6th
0: oh so i'm so sorry opened- i didn't i didn't know that i don't know wow yeah wow.
1: this is it's wow. new information. it just came out you know but no he um um it's it's yeah it's been a pretty heavy week as far as uh mac dr john his real name was malcolm Rebinac, and he was a musician who started out in the 50s he played his first session for the legendary Cosmo Matassa's uh, studio in 1955 when he was 15 years old, and he just died June 6th. He was, uh, I think they said he was 77, 78 years old. Wow. Um, yeah, heavy dude, man. Like, it's it's one of those things. Like, give yourself an afternoon to dig into his body of work and learn who he was because. Uh, there's nothing I could say that would really accurately capture it. He was not of this world. He was a spiritual voodoo man who practiced gre-gree, something as close as voodoo or hoodoo that you could imagine in this day and age. Um, definitely of a completely different world, kind of an anachronism in that sense. Like you yeah, just, interesting. you can't comprehend how something like him existed in a world like today. And, um, he, he had just the most brilliant mind for for taking apart words and putting them back together. He wrote, I mean, his musical chops, he had the most, that's the thing about New Orleans and the way we revere our musicians is that, you know, what car you drive or what status you have in every other community means nothing. And in New Orleans, you're ranked solely on your skill. You are judged strictly by how damn good you are on your instrument. and. Dr. John was a guy who had the respect of every single musician because his musicianship was just top, top shelf. He's on his, he had this real unique way of talking. And like I said, he would, he would mangle words a lot. And he had this great organ sound that he would play, played keyboards because he was originally a guitar player and he got in a bar fight and the bar owner shot off his, his ring finger on his left hand. So he had to learn how to play piano because he couldn't play guitar anymore. Wow! Yeah, I'm telling you, this I I, I can't even begin to scratch the surface. <laughs> like if this guy was truly something. To, if if I hadn't known him and loved him and worked with him, I wouldn't believe such a person ever existed. It was just that kind of guy. And um, but he uh, he had this real unique organ tone that he would use on certain. Uh, overdubs that he, we would do. And, and, uh, it was this, it's that sound on a B3 that's mainly percussion, the percussion switch, you know, mm-hmm. that, that kind of chok chok sound. Yeah. And, uh, and then he'd pull the drawbars out to where the only harmonics that were playing were a really low note and a really high lo- high note. So like a bass and a flute at the same time, kind of. And it made this real kind of flute sound when it was combined with the percussion, And he had a real specific kind of trill that he would play using that sound. And he did it one time. I was making a record. uh, For Backstory, I worked with him from 2002 until regularly 2014. And then after 2014, he kind of went through some changes that uh, he wasn't making records as much anymore. And then it slowly deteriorated into um he stopped touring and he just he kind of would chill out at home and uh shane terrio actually went to his house and put together enough music to make one more record on him um and uh that's going to be coming out at some point but wow but yeah so so i worked with mac from 2002 until about 2014 and we were doing an overdub on something and he pulled that sound out and he played his lick that and it was like whoa i realized i've been hearing that sound my entire life and at the in the moment i thought okay part of this is growing up in new Orleans and legitimately literally hearing dr john my whole entire life Mm -hmm. but i felt like it was something bigger than that so i said something i said mac man i've heard that sound forever everybody ripping you off he goes yeah where you heard that sound before i said i don't know i've heard it on um uh, uh, Mockingbird by Carly Simon and, and James Taylor at the end in the ride out is that organ lick that happens throughout that whole thing. I said, that's exactly that sound you play." playing. He goes, that's me.
0: <laughs>
1: it was like, holy crap. And then there was another time, um, where he pulled it out and he said, yeah, this is the way I used it on Spanish Harlem. And I know Tom Dowd's recordings inside and out. And I was like, uh, Mac, I don't know. And Mac recorded with Tom Dowd. I got a lot of information about Tom Dowd from Mac directly. And um, I said, Mac, I, I don't. I, the Drifter's Spanish Harlem doesn't have any organ on it at all. I know that recording really. No, asshole, I'm talking about Aretha's Spanish Harlem. I was like, holy shit, he's right. That's a key <laughs> component of that song on Aretha Franklin's version of Spanish Harlem, Dr. John's organ part. And so once you hear that part, you realize how ubiquitous he was. He was, I mean, legit a, a member of the Wrecking Crew with Carol Kay and, and Hal Blaine and Earl Palmer, who was from New Orleans. Earl Palmer was one of the people who got Dr. John into the L.A. recording scene in the 60s. And um, just a heavy cat, man. I'll, I'll leave that for all of your listeners to unpack.
0: <laughs> That's so great, man. What a bunch of great stories. Um, yeah. I'll have to go dig up some of those recordings uh, too. Maybe I can find some of those on YouTube as well.
1: Oh, definitely. They're they're all. Like um, I said, he was ubiquitous, man. He is everywhere.
0: Um, very, very cool, man. And it's this great reminder. The organ is such a wonderful instrument. I have a Hammond M one hundred and one. I think it mm-hmm. is um, upstairs. Um, and you know, I don't have a B three, but it's pretty close. And it's got precaution. It's got the draw bars. and it's uh, it's such an expressive instrument once you begin to explore. You know, really messing with the sounds and the and the draw bars and coming up with different tones and you know driving the the uh, leslie and all that stuff,
1: yeah, I think that's key is and I think it can be i at one time, I definitely believed it was the most expressive instrument that humans have come up with, and I still think obviously the voice is gonna beat any instrument at any time, but the b three is making a damn good run, <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, up in, up here in Nashville, I like to say that uh, the pedal steel is kind of like that for us. Right. Um, right. Have you had much chance for, to record that as well?
1: You know, I, I really regrettably haven't. We've, we've had a few guys who could do lap steel. There was a great guitar player who just passed a couple of years ago, a guy named Dave Rosser, who could play lap steel and just blow your mind. Another guy, unfortunately, who just passed, a guy named Spencer Boren, who could play lap steel and blow your mind. Uh, But as far as pedal steel, here's how weird it gets in New Orleans. There's a guy named Dave Easley who is an absolute master pedal steel player. But when you listen to him play pedal steel, he's playing playing jazz. He's not playing country. He's not playing swing. He's not playing anything you've ever heard of pedal steel in context of before. Very cool. It's really sick. And at one time he was using a MIDI controller to convert his pedal steel notes into MIDI notes. It was crazy, but that's that's what pedal steel looks like in New Orleans. <laughs> this is more of an anomaly. <laughs> you know? Well,
0: that's cool. Well, shout out to you, Jesse. That's my buddy who's in New Orleans now playing pedal steel, so he, yeah, he knows right. who he is. <laughs> he knows who to go find. Yeah. Want to record killer drums in your home studio? Then check out Rock Stars of Drums to learn how to record, edit, and mix pro-sounding drums with a professional Nashville Session drummer in a Grammy-winning studio. Or if you're ready to start mastering your own records at home, then check out Rock Stars of Mastering, where I walk you through exactly how I mastered my own records, Skadoosh, using nothing but plugins in PreSonus Studio One. And if mixing is your focus, then check out my free course Mix Master Bundle, where I show you how to mix using stock and free plugins and Pro Tools. And the best part is these techniques would work for you in whichever DAW you're using right now. Plus, you get a look at how I recorded everything in my studio and multi-track downloads for you to practice mixing and even include in your mixing portfolio if you want. Are you ready to make your best record ever? Then go to Mix Master Bundle to get started for free now or look for the clickable link in the show notes of this episode. Talk about recording uh, organ. Um, what, what are some ways that you like to actually record organ? How would you have recorded Dr. John's organ?
1: So, um, the, the first and foremost, because he is somebody specifically like, like Mac, like Dr. John, he is creating the sound he wants at the Leslie. He wasn't real stoked to use a B3 without a Leslie. And, uh, you know, for the listeners who aren't familiar, there's a whole nother story. The relationship between, Mr. Hammond and Mr. Leslie, they did not get along.
0: Oh, interesting. I never heard that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, two totally different companies. Basically, the purpose of the Hammond organ was to make the sound of a church organ and a portable device, and uh, he just would play the sound out. It's basically additive synthesis. It's the most primitive additive synthesis you can think of, and he uh, basically built this box that would play the sound out into a giant tube driven speaker. And they hoped that they could recreate the sound of a pipe organ and, uh, replace all these pipe organs all over the place. And a lot of people felt like, you know, speaker, nice try. Great job on the organ, but the speaker, not so much. So, uh, a few people tried different approaches on how to get the organ to sound more like a pipe organ. And this guy, um, uh, I can't remember his first name, Leslie, but Hammond's first name was like Beres Hammond or something like that. But this guy, Leslie, came up with this idea for a rotating speaker, and it's basically two speakers pointing away from each other in a box. One of them plays the low frequencies, it points down, and it, it has a spinning tub. And then mm-hmm. the, the top speaker is pointing into a horn that's spinning around, and they spin in opposite directions, and you can control the speed or, the, or if they're spinning at all. And he sold it as an add-on in the fifties to the B3 organ and Hammond and everybody loved it. Everybody said, Oh man, this is it. And people went to Hammond and said, dude, you should totally build uh, a Leslie cabinet because this guy's going to steal all your business. And he was like, no, it's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. It's designed to work through this speaker and blah, blah, blah. I hate that guy for building the Leslie and the Leslie (laughs) guy's like, fine, I'll just keep selling these things all day long. And that's what, that's what happened.
0: Free market, man. That's yep. the way that drives innovation. <laughs>
1: that's right. Let it fly. So and Super that's, cool. that's, So you didn't have a real set, you know, starting in the late 50s, I guess the, the Jimmy Smiths and um the million organ players whose names I can't remember right now who made that combination and decided this is this is the voice of the B3 organ. So you really what we know as the B three is not a complete setup unless you have the organ and the Leslie working in concert and and that's i think that speaks to that expressiveness that you were talking about it's it it can really move you
0: now how did you like to mic up a leslie
1: yeah sorry so um the uh basically on the low tub you'd put i don't know a d12 d112 just anything that captures good low end you have to be mindful because those rotors are spinning and they will create wind noise so mm-hmm. you can end up with wind noise but um Basically, if you just put a D112 or or something like that um, at the uh, bottom rotor, right where the amp is, is a tube amp in the bottom of the Leslie. If you just kind of mic up that tube amp, you'll get all the low frequencies. And then on the top, you kind of, you have to decide, do I want a mono signal or do I want a stereo signal? And if you want stereo, you can kind of put it, um, put one microphone on either side of the the, the spinning speaker at the top, like uh, the bolts on the side of Frankenstein's head, one on either side. And um, you could do uh, a Sennheiser 441 is great for that. Sennheiser 421 is great for that. Um, what else? 57s work. Uh, SM81s, small diaphragm condensers, are a really great sound for jazz if you want to preserve that that kind of open top end and, mm-hmm. and make a real transparent sound. Um, things that don't work on the top end of the Leslie in stereo are large diaphragm microphones. A pair of U87s is not great on the top of a Leslie uh, amp. But if you want to use, say you have to record a a B3 and you only have a large diaphragm microphone, then what I would say is choose to record it in mono and back it off about five feet so that you're recording the entire Leslie speaker as one thing. Yeah. And just kind of get it in your head that, you you have two ways of recording organ as a stereo thing or as a mono thing with one microphone and and i kind of simplify you know you want to reduce the number of options and that's just an easy way of reducing the options you know
0: all right cool now um and that that's great and thanks you for sharing that how about um when you would record piano for for dr john what were some ways that you, you know was it a, was it an upright piano was it a grand piano what were some favorite ways to record and were you recording his voice and the piano simultaneously? And is there anything we need to know about setting that up properly?
1: Okay, so uh, to record Mac on piano, it was a kind of this weird anomaly that he would, it was like an old school mindset where when we did demos, he didn't care what he was recording on. But when he was doing the album, he would kind of gravitate towards a grand piano. Nothing like a nine foot Steinway, but you know, at least a five foot Yamaha or something like that. And to get those mic'd up correctly, you want to be a couple inches off the strings or that more classical or jazz sound. You want to be outside of the harp altogether. You want to mm-hmm. be outside of the instrument instead of shoving microphones into the soundboard. And so if he's singing at the same time, you were kind of screwed and you, cause you're, it's really difficult to separate the singing from the piano and vice versa. And so, um, You know, I did a lot of stuff where I would convince him, you know, you stuff uh, blankets in the like behind the music rack or, um, you know, you do what you can to get isolation from the vocal as best you can. And then, you know, you have that conversation with him and you say, look, it's bleeding. And he was such an old pro. He he'd literally spent 50 years in the recording studio. So I could say, hey, your your vocals bleeding. And he'd say, "Okay, I'm going to reduce it to every first word or something like that and that way the band still had a cue and he could keep his place by singing the right lyric but it wasn't Im- it wasn't involved in the microphones as heavily as it would be if he was singing it like a performance
0: interesting which
1: was, that's his native thing so there were times where i could get him to sing a little quieter there were times where i could get him to you know just isolated enough and then there were other times when I would investigate and find out that he was going to want to overdub a clavinet or we use this RMI electro piano. That's kind of his classic right place sound. And so I discovered that. And he had this Nord that he loved inexplicably. And um, <laughs> so it's like, yeah, one of the greatest piano players that's ever lived. And he loved his Nord, but whatever. That's great. Um, and so, what I discovered is that I could get him to do a first pass, a scratch pass with the band on the Nord, and then it was not an issue. And then we'd go right. back and overdub the piano as a second thing. So, it was kind of any one of those techniques you had to be able to pull out at any time, depending on his mood or how quickly he wanted to work or the requirements of that moment. But sometimes there's no easy answer to how do you isolate the vocal from the piano? <laughs> well,
0: and you point out a good trick, you're a reminder of a trick. So whether it's voice and acoustic, voice and piano, um, voice and percussion, voice and whatever, um, you can actually start. Sometimes you could start by having somebody actually play and sing and like give it all they got, and then just go and and overdub piano on top of that by just turning that way down as a guide track and overdub piano on top of that and then overdub voice, and you can kind of rebuild it that way, and it can work pretty well.
1: Yeah, and I've done stuff where you had to patch in. It was an interesting thing. Like In 2002, I did the first session that Dr. John ever did on Pro Tools. He had always worked on tape before that. And so when he saw what I could do with Pro Tools, and he saw like – he'd seen me cut tape, so he knew how quick I could make an edit on tape. But when he saw how quickly I could do that same edit or even a more complicated edit on Pro Tools – he almost immediately abandoned tape because he saw how quickly and easily you could edit so he was always thinking in terms of a production as well so like for example he would play a part and make a mistake and he'd, he'd come in on the talkback and say hey chris do i have to play that again or can i use the tricknology which is what would call protocol tricknology so um, he definitely was somebody who would was willing to grab any tool he could for the finish of the record, and and if it was just punching in the piano where you could hear his bleed, he would do. He'd be game, you know. So he wasn't That's opposed correct. to any idea to go back and fix something.
0: Now, what about a vocal mic for John, uh, Doctor John?
1: U eighty seven, U sixty seven, U sixty seven would be the easy answer. But until this new reissue, I never in 30 years have heard two U67s that sounded remotely close to each other. So there's a place uh, here in town, Esplanade Studio. It's an old church. This guy Misha Kaskavili runs it. Dude's a brilliant genius. And he's got a U67 that that used to record Dr. John perfectly. Um, But the U67 that I use out at Studio in the country, it didn't really work.
0: All right, cool. Um, well, so let me jump forward, because um, there's just so much cool stuff to talk about. Um, you've recorded BB King and The Meters. Tell us the story about working with those guys.
1: So The Meters had been, they're the legendary studio band. The, the closest equivalent, I guess, would be Booker T and the MGs out of Memphis. Um, Alan Toussaint was the preeminent singer, songwriter, piano uh, player, uh producer, from new Orleans. I mean, really created the sound of the seventies nationally, as well as locally. Um, probably his biggest hit would be, um, uh, uh, Lady Marmalade by, uh, uh LaBelle, Patty LaBelle. He wrote that and produced it and the backing band on it. Uh, I think the drummer's different, but basically on all his recordings, he would use the same backing band. Um, Zig Baudelest, mm-hmm. um, Art Neville, on B3, uh, George Porter Jr. on bass, and uh, Zig Modalest on drums, and uh, Leo Nocentelli on guitar. And that was his studio band, and he could shape that band into backing any artist that he was producing. Um, And eventually, the meters were formed out of those four guys in the backing band, um, starting their own band, and basically just saying, we can do this on our own, or we should be a brand in and of ourselves. And they went on to be one of the most important bands in funk history, really kind of created that sound. And through the 90s and 2000s, they were um, tied up in a whole bunch of legal battles that made it really difficult. They weren't, I don't think they were mad at each other. Like, I don't think they ever fell out of love with each other. I think their business just got so screwed up, which is also one of the problems in that era of New Orleans from the fifties and sixties and seventies is that business kind of got sideways in the music business. And so guys like that would often get marginalized and you'd have this ridiculous talent that was completely being underrepresented, uh, uh, legally and financially. And they were just really being taken advantage of. And so, um, a lot of times they would get caught up in deals that would prevent them from being able to do what they do best. And Mm. I think a lot of frustration grew out of that. So, Long story short, through the 90s and 2000s, really through the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, they had basically broken up and were kind of unable to play with each other. Two guys moved to San Francisco. One guy moved to LA. One guy moved to San Francisco. You know, George and Art stayed here in town, and it just made it really difficult to have this legendary band and then it coincided with the rise of the internet and how quickly you could share information and all of a sudden everybody wants more meters and more meters and there was no meters to be had even though all four dudes were still viable musicians at the top of their game just a really frustrating time and so in 2006-2007 in that aftermath of Katrina there was um A lot of recordings, a lot of attention. We had a big spotlight on New Orleans, and so a lot of our legends were starting to be paraded out, and we were starting to be able to say, hey, look, we're still viable as a creative community, and you know, we just need this little help with the infrastructure and the business, and we'll be back on our feet. And so there was a real push to get them to reunite, and um, so I was lucky enough to be the one who recorded it when it happened. That's
0: um, so cool, man.
1: And nobody's—you've not nobody's ever really heard that recording. The stuff that you've heard more of is now they—they they ended up, you know, a few years after that, they backed Trombone Shorty on one of his recordings, and that's all four original meters. And so, the the historicness of recording all four meters at once was kind of lost after they were able to start working together again, but. Don't get it twisted. That was pretty amazing to get four meters under the recording at once, you know.
0: What were some of the things that went through your mind as far as how should I record these guys?
1: I wanted to do duty to the, you know, like the first guy who taught me was Cosmo Matassa, and he was the guy who recorded them. And I wanted to do the duty to uphold my piece in the lineage. You know, it's like the, 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 the generation that inherits the farm. You don't want it to go bust on your watch. <laughs> you know, like right. I'm, I, my grandfather had this farm. I have to keep it running. You know, I felt that way about the new Orleans, the responsibility I had to the new Orleans musicians. And the fact that I grew up here and I learned from the old school guys, you know, uh, in that direct lineage.
0: Yeah. You know, I so you were like, Hey guys, I got this great idea. We're going to do this all on iOS. I've got <laughs> a great app on my <laughs> iPhone. <laughs>
1: as much as I would have liked to, no, you have to pick your battles. And I was just kind of happy to be in the room at that point.
0: <laughs> yeah, okay. So, so uh, tell us some of the miking that you would have used for the meters. I mean, we're okay. talking about drums, organ, guitar, and bass, right? So,
1: yeah. Um, um, yeah. And then uh, sometimes they'd play piano, there was singing as well, but. For the guitar, um, let's see, one of the fun things that I thought ended up sounding great was, uh, doing a microphone on the front and the back of the guitar amp. So like, uh, two SM sevens, one on the front of the amp, one on the back of the amp and flip the one on the back out of phase and then just blend those two sounds. That was a really crazy useful sound that I didn't expect was going to work as well as it did, but yeah. that, that came from the history of it. Um, and then the other thing to remember is, like, back in the day, one of the things Kaz used to say was that, you know, in the 50s and 60s, they didn't have a lot of microphones. There were just not a lot to be had. And so, um, regardless of if he could afford them or if they were available in New Orleans, he, there just weren't a lot of microphones on planet Earth, period. And so, you by necessity, you had to learn how to record with less. And so, that's where things like the three-mic technique come out of, or kick and overhead for the entire drum sound,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, or things like you got four microphones to mic up the kit. You blend them down on a tube mixer to a mono channel. And that's your whole drum sound is that mono channel. you commit, you know, so things like that, but at the same time, taking advantage of modern conveniences, like the fact that I can put up a hundred tracks and pro tools and record a safety of every single drum in case my three mic technique doesn't work or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, you know, guys, those old legendary guys, the Fats Dominoes, the Alan Two Saints, the Dr. Johns, the Meters, they came from a time when you didn't have a ton of microphones to play with, so they their sound doesn't really work if you put a ton of microphones on them. So you're kind of, you kind of have to use the more classic mic techniques because that's where they sound best. That's how they're playing. They're going to adjust their sound to, to sound like whatever you give them. And so keeping it simple definitely goes a long way with guys like that.
0: So are we talking like U67s and that kind of thing for the drums for overhead? Uh, and-
1: w- let's see, overhead on, I think I used a Coles in mono out front on the drums and um, 421 in the kick drum, uh, 57 and a 451 taped together for the snare. Um, uh, something ridiculous for the hi-hat mic because I wanted a ratty, trashy hi-hat sound. It was like, mm-hmm. Like a TAC microphone that came with a tape recorder or something like nice. that. Um and then the overheads were um oh, 414s When in doubt, four fourteens will get you out of a lot of trouble. <laughs> That's
0: a Okay, so you did go stereo overheads. Yeah, as far as you yeah, yeah.
1: And even if you dump one of them and you just deliver a mono mix out of it, you know, sometimes printing it and deciding later is useful. But again, you you don't want to give yourself too many choices.
0: Yeah. Now, old school 414s or yeah, yeah. the new newer ones?
1: No, unfortunately, I got to say there's a difference between the ones with the physical switches and the LED switches. We used to call them the 414 and the Robot 414. Right. And unfortunately, man, I can't get behind the Robot 414s as ubiquitous as they are, as 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 accessible as they are. I can't get behind them. Now, that said, the C214, which is basically like the Four fourteen diaphragm with no switches. That's a great microphone.
0: That's one of the newer ones.
1: Yeah, it's one of, it's like five years old in the last five years they came out with it. I think it's a two fourteen. That's a fantastic microphone. But cool. short of that, unfortunately, yeah, I gotta say four fourteen, uh, what is it? B U L S or... Yeah,
0: those those that's what I've got. It's a darker yeah. four fourteen, and I think Not the um and sort of has a silver face and a black face, I think,
1: right? Yeah. Yeah, the holy grail is the 414 EB, because that was the CK12 capsule that was in a C12, and um, and a lot of heavy, you know, uh, large diaphragm microphones like that.
0: Okay, cool. Um, well, we're, we're running out of time, but before we close up, um, let me let me ask you to share the story about working with B.B. King, too, because that's, <laughs> okay. that's another legend.
1: Yeah, that was a pretty heavy one. So I'll try to tell it quickly. Uh, we were doing a tribute to uh, Fats Domino to help rebuild his house after Katrina, and B.B. King agreed to sing and play guitar on a song, and the backing band was Ivan Neville and Dumpstafunk, which is a, an amazing soon to be legendary band in their own right so we did the bed track here in new orleans and then i flew out to vegas to record bb king doing his vocal and um guitar and so they bring in his guitar and i take it out of the case and i'm looking at it, it's like holy cow this is actually lucille so wow. i pull it out i plug it in the head provided me a twin and i think i just had a 57 on the twin and um, I. Uh, um, plugged it in and tried to get a sound out of it and there's switches and knobs all over this thing I'm thinking you know what Lucille's complicated like most women I'm just gonna plug this in and let B.B. King figure it out I got I got the B.B. King himself coming in in a minute so I'll just put this on the stand and to describe the sound that I was getting out of Lucille was like when a guitar cable has an open leg like this the the, the 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 signal is there it's just real weak and right. it's like an amp that won't go into distortion and is dark it sounds like an impedance mismatch really right and so um that's the best sound i could get out of it so i figured you know what i'll just let him do his thing so he comes in and we record the the vocal uh, i think we were at the palms whatever the studio in the hotel was and um uh, I had a Telefunken 251 for his vocal. He sang it down. Pretty much, the first take was exactly what I used all the way through. And um, we did another take, and I think in the end, the comp I did, I used mostly the first vocal take. And then um, on the the uh, second pass was the guitar, and he does he does his uh, first pass of the guitar track. And it's amazing licks, just mind-blowingly good licks. Classic BB King, but the sound is terrible. It's the sound that I had left in there. He didn't change a thing about the sound. Oh, no. So I was like, oh, crap, you know, what am I going to do? So he, he calls me in. He says, oh, young man, uh, can you come in here for a second? I said, yes, sir, no problem. So I turned the playbacks down on the console and left Pro Tools running. So I actually have this conversation recorded still to this day but he says uh he says i think lucille's not feeling too well i said uh oh no what's up i come out in the room and he asked me do you have the microphone turned down i said yes sir i do um because there were people in the control room and he didn't want to hear he says look i figured out the problem lucille likes it in this hole and he unplugs i there were two jacks on the back of the guitar and he unplugs it from the jack I had randomly picked and plugs it into the the jack on the back of the guitar. And all of a sudden, there's Lucille and the sound <laughs> of B.B. King. And so I was like, well, I am so sorry, Lucille. I apologize, you know. So he says, all right, let's do another pass. I say, okay, no problem. So I run back into the control room, re it up, and record. And this time, the sound is blistering. It's amazing. It's everything you've ever dreamt B.B. King was going to be. But the performance, you could kind of tell he had given me his best shot on that first take. So he comes in, he finishes up, and he says, what do you think? I said, okay, I think I got enough. I can comp it together. And at this point, I was basically lying. And um, so he says, okay, and he comes back in because uh, I was just so nervous about screwing it up, about pissing him off. It's just so many things going through my head. I said, "Let me let me comp something together, and if I have to take another take, We'll go back and record some more. He says, okay, no problem. So he comes in and he's talking to the hangers on in the studio and I'm comping my ass off. Like just, (laughs) I decide, you know what? Screw the sound. The whole thing, all that matters is I have to get the performance right. If if this performance isn't right, nobody's going to care if it's BB King. So I decide regardless of how it sounds, I'm just going to put his hottest licks as the guitar part. So Just as I'm finishing the comp, he's looking up on the okay, you ready to play it for me, young man? It's like, yep, I guess I am. Whether I'm you know, at this point, the 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 comp is I would say 80% first take and shit sound. (laughs) And about 20% of it is the killer sound, but the second take. So I'm I'm sweating at this point, like, oh crap, he wants to hear it. I've not listened to it all the way through. I have no idea if I hit play, if I smash this pace bar right now, all the confidence in the in me in this room is going to go out. And that's you're dead as soon as the band loses their confidence in you. So
0: right.
1: you got to keep your confidence. You got to keep their confidence in you. So I realized, ah shit, I got to do something. I got to do something. And this was kind of, you know, not a, it was early in the days of HD Pro Tools, so not a lot of people had a ton of plugins. But I thought, you know what? Maybe if I can blast this whole thing through a distortion plugin, you won't notice the change in sound too much. So mm-hmm. just before I hit play, I switch over to the mixer screen. I pull in the plugin list and I look, and there's no real distortion plugins. It's just like the stock plugins from Pro Tools. And I look, and it's SansAmp. And I was like, oh, okay, SansAmp. Maybe there's a Twin, and I can at least match the guitar amp setting that I had on the Twin. So I pull up the Sansamp plugin, and this is all happening in seconds, mind you. He's just asked me to play this back, and I'm panicking. Right. So I pull up the Sansamp. I'm looking through the preset list on the Sansamp because you know a Sansamp setting is like crunch, punch, low, high. It makes no sense in the real world. Yeah. you a, a, a preset's going to give me the best fighting chance. So I pull up the preset. I'm looking for a twin. I'm looking for a twin. I'm look. Oh, there's a preset called BB King. Let me use that. <laughs> Click, play, boom. That's pretty much how you hear it on the record.
0: That's so awesome, dude. What a what an amazing story. <laughs> Holy crap. That was great, dude. Thank you for sharing that, man. That's that's good. That's legendary story on the podcast <laughs> right now. Oh, awesome. Well, um, man, I don't I don't even want to go, but um let me let me jump to our usual a couple of our closing questions sure. and um before i thank you profusely for being on the uh, the podcast with us um but when you started out in recording what do you feel like was holding you back
1: just not having enough time so back then there was no pro tools there was no computers in a in a studio at all unless you were doing midi and you had to get actual hours putting microphones on shit you had to get actual hours learning how a Neve works, learning how an SSL works, learning how a Trident works, whatever studios had in those days, you had to learn it. And so the only way you were really going to get good was doing it over and over again, talking to your friends and stuff like that. So that sense of community was there because we had, I had a few friends who were doing it and, and we were lucky enough to have a, a bunch of decent studios in town at the time I started. But in those days, the hardest thing to get was time in the studio. So you would do sessions and hang later so that you could do your own shit after the band left or whatever. And, and I think that's ultimately how like Trent Reznor made pretty hate machine is he assisted at a studio until he could get time in mid at midnight, you know? Mm, and that's and right. so, so I would say just to put it in comparison to what you're up against today. If, if, if the hardest thing for me to get started with was getting time on the equipment, you can almost say there's no excuse if somebody's got a decent rig in their house or a laptop and a pair of speakers. But even then it comes down to the time that you put into it. You you have to just put the hours in and make those mistakes. Don't be afraid to paint in broad strokes and then force yourself to clean up your mess later because that gives you some skills. But the fact is, you're not going to get any skills if you just read about it or listen to a podcast and I'm a huge fan. I'm a rock star, a recording studio rock star fan. I still am pounding information into my head however I can get it. I'm going to be learning this stuff until the day I die. And that's that, great. You know, that's the that's the thing you got to remember. Put the time in.
0: And and you know, put the time in but but give yourself a little bit of pressure too because I think sometimes people suffer from like I'll just keep tweaking and I'm not really moving forward. You know if you didn't have BB King looking over your shoulder, you might not have just looked for the preset and and gone for it to discover what sounded good. you might you might still be tweaking that guitar solo to this day.
1: <laughs> exactly. that's that's totally it given you know sometimes reducing your options is is never a bad thing. So you know reduce your options even if it makes you panic because that might give you some you know fight or flight instinct that you rely on for the rest of your career.
0: So I think I was so, I was just cracking up so much at your story. I forgot to listen to what B.B. King's reaction was when he heard the solo go by. Oh, he
1: was like, oh, that's very good. You did a great job with that young man. And it just, he was done. He re, he was stoked that he didn't have to go do another pass.
0: That's so funny. So you did, you made the right move. You didn't make <laughs> him keep to- playing. <laughs> that's great, man. All right. Well, so um, now this last question is hypothetical but we're going to take the way back studio machine Okay. and you're going to go back in time, find young Chris, uh, want to be an astronaut. And you're going to say, listen, dude, here's the single most important thing you need to know to actually be a rock star of the recording studio yourself one day. What advice would you go back and give yourself if you could?
1: Tim, that's a, that's a good one. Um, somewhere between trust yourself and, listen above everything. Listen three times before you speak. Listen three times before you think. Listen three times before you move a microphone. Listen three times before you act. Listening becomes the most important thing you can do. And I don't just mean listening like, what is this going to sound like to the microphone? I mean, listening when a singer comes in and says, oh, I'm not going to sing very good today. Hmm. What what, What are they telling you? You know, I I would say listening with your third ear (laughs) to borrow from Ryan, you know, like that, this idea of listening beyond the sound and and hearing the emotional standpoint of it and then trusting yourself to know that you have the tools, however meager, you may feel like, oh, I I know so little about recording. Screw that. You know enough. However, you know about recording, you know enough to get started. You can always learn more. I I still want to learn more. Andrew Shep's told me many times he wants to learn more. So, it doesn't matter where you are in the game, you always can learn more. So, get that out of the way and just assume you're going to be learning until the day you croak. So, between now and then, go ahead and make some mistakes, make some you know, do some experiments, try some stuff, fail. You know, trust that you have enough to get out there on the road and start driving.
0: So great, man. I love that advice. Um, well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us on Recording Studio Rockstars. You have been a, an awesome guest. Man. I'm astounded <laughs> with all these great tips and stories you've shared. I've learned a ton so far. Um, let the Rockstars know how they can find you online. How can they learn more about you? Uh, I guess we didn't really get to talk much about 30 amp, um, but you know, let us know how we can find that too and keep up with your next adventure to go record people around the world.
1: For sure. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I kind of have the personal, um, social media stuff going. My Twitter is, uh, at Augustus at sea, all one word S E A like on a boat. And, um, that, you know, it's just kind of my own brain droppings that come out of that. And then, uh, Facebook, I'm generally inclined to friend people on Facebook if I've met you in person or spoken to you on the phone. So don't be afraid to reach out and uh, start a dialogue and, you know, let's let's be friends on Facebook that way. Uh, you know, I, I don't just accept every friend there, but it's pretty obvious if you search Chris Finney on Facebook, which one is me. And um, let's see, where else? The Trombone Shorty Academy uh, or Trombone Shorty Foundation. Uh, their website, org is a great place to keep up with me and what I'm doing with my students. And, um, and then 30ampcircuit.com and .org is the record label with me and Charlie as we go all over the world. Unfortunately, not moving as quickly as we'd like it to with the current administration and their opinions about how people from <laughs> Mexico should be able to come into America. Um, but, you know, we're forging on anyway. We're still living the dream and dreaming the dream. So that's what's up.
0: Very cool, man. Well, dude, thank you so much for being on the show with us. It's been an absolute pleasure hanging out with you. And um, I'm going to make sure that uh, our mutual friend, Pat Sansone, uh, <laughs> that I pass on the hello. He'll probably be listening to this right now. Hey, Pat. I, I, and you and you too, John Stewart. I'm guessing maybe you know John as I've well. I've known
1: John a long time. I sure have, man. That's some fun people right there.
0: So cool, man. Well, thanks, dude. And I look forward to meeting you in person too
1: likewise bro i've had a blast keep up the great work i'm really proud of what y'all are doing and i i consider this a huge resource i can't say enough anything you absolutely ever need from me i am at your service the same goes for you rock stars thanks again
0: thanks so much chris cheers you got it Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, then please share this episode with your friends on social media and leave a rating and review on iTunes to help the podcast reach more rock stars like yourself. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to rsrockstars.com review for an easy explanation. And remember to hit the subscribe button to keep up with weekly episodes. And if you're ready to make your best record ever now, then head over to Recording Studio Rockstars Academy, where you can start with my a free course at mixmasterbundle.com, and if you want more free content from Recording Studio Rockstars, all you have to do is go to rsrockstars.com/email. Again, that's rsrockstars.com/email to enter your name and email, and I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, podcast updates, and even free gear giveaways for your studio. Just look for the link in the show notes below. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks for being a rockstar. I'm Lyd Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now go! make great music.